Hi, everybody. Welcome to the April 6th, 2018 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Patricia Calhoun, sitting in for Dominic Dizzuti, working in Vegas. He'll be back next week. Let's get a quick take on construction on the I-70 expansion project beginning this summer after a U.S. district judge decided against an effort to pause the plan over environmental concerns. Meanwhile, the city of Denver is embarking on a $290 million study to assess potential flooding in the Globeville area. Natasha Gardner bringing unusual insight to that chair. Articles <laughs> editor from 5280. Are we going to see construction starting this summer? Well, if we do, this project will have the disadvantage of having already taken so long to start that people will already be sick of construction before it uh -huh. even begins. Um, you know, I do think that the, the flooding study is interesting. I mean, you don't really have to study this to know that Globeville gets flooded. It's been flooded as long as it's existed. This is a major part of its history. But knowing how some of the recent improvements that have been done in the last 20 and even 50 years are, are holding up or not, will be important for that neighborhood. David Kopel, DU Law Professor and Independence Institute Guru, you probably have a lot to say about traffic right now. <laughs> yes, I'm the, I'm, I was late because of a, a jam on I-70 and sadly the express lane was closed and so I'm, I'm clearly a victim on multiple levels. Uh, but this is an example of why it takes so long and so few, many fewer things get built these days than did in the, the middle of the 20th century is because of all the environmental impact statements and everything else like that. It takes years and years uh, before a project uh, ever uh, uses a shovel. I think Denver did things right. It's a controversial project and there's good pros and cons on both sides, but I, I think Denver worked hard to be fully in compliance uh, with the applicable federal laws and this decision reflects that, so it's, it's going forward. Eric Sonderman, political consultant, will this expansion be done in our lifetimes? I think it'll be done in our lifetimes. Um, there are different lifetime spans probably <laughs> around this table, yeah. but no, it, it will be done in our, in our lifetimes. Uh, both Natasha and David, with their separate points, were, were right on the mark. Uh, David, in terms of how difficult it is to do anything these days in terms of infrastructure, just because of all the obstacles to overcome, including in our court system. Uh, Natasha, with respect to Globeville, I hope this is a sign that it's not just a study, because you don't need a study to show that Glo Globeville is a very vulnerable area to flooding, um, but that it's a sign that maybe some in infrastructure investment is headed uh, to that community, and maybe we should have done a $10 million study and have $280 million out of $290 million uh, still available for investment, but um, hopefully money will flow. And batting cleanup, Joey Bunch, Bon Vivant, senior political <laughs> writer for ColoradoPolitics.com. You're a road warrior. What do you think of these projects? Well, you know, on one hand, there's nothing new about this. As Dave says, these projects always take a long time to, uh, to happen. On the other hand, it's very uniquely Colorado. For 100 years, Globeville has been a place anybody could afford to live. And I think... You know, as much as this is about flooding, I think it's an iceberg issue that there's more below the surface than there is above the surface. And below the surface, I think people are concerned that this is going to become another Denver neighborhood where people, working people can't afford to live anymore. You know, is it going to become Rhino North or, or even worse, Boulder South? You know, I think people have a long view on this. You know, the grassroots are being fed by uh, outside groups with fertilizer, so they're spreading. I don't know. I don't know if we're going to see this built in our lifetime. My lifetime's probably going to be about 4 o'clock this afternoon when I have a heart attack. So, 
Maybe and that we'll... will be before this show airs, so be sure, to t- <laughs> be sure to keep watching. On the heels of several sexual misconduct and harassment claims, the Colorado State Legislature released its report on workplace culture this week. Meanwhile, the Senate voted not to expel State Senator Randy Baumgartner following an investigation to a sexual harassment claim against him that was found to be more likely than not. Natasha, what do you think of what we've seen at the legislature this year? Oh, it's been a wild ride. Um, I will say that this this report has been really interesting. It's more than 230 pages. Um, I'm still digging into it to truly understand what's happening, but it's, it is long awaited. It is something that, that provides a step forward. Um, uh, one of the important things, it sort of starts out by talking about great accomplishments, things that have gone well in the state, and then clearly states that there's something going wrong with the, cap- the culture at the Capitol. Um, one of the things are sort of three data points that go into that is that the majority of people who were polled were feeling pretty safe and comfortable at the Capitol, um, but 30% reported that they had seen or experienced different types of harassment at the Capitol, but that very few of those are actually reported. So for me, I guess the question I want to delve into or to think about more is why if people are comfortable if they're seeing harassment, why they aren't reporting it, and then what else is going on. And I think the report starts to dig into that a little more and gives us some perspective on where to go forward. The Capitol is a unique environment because of the power players that are there, but also the type of workers that are there. You have everyone from interns to lobbyists to politicians um, to people who simply work in that building. And it really provides a framework for looking at how this can be applied throughout the state of Colorado. Um, The report really brings in a lot of um, current precedent and historical historical um, information from different states and different corporations. Um, so, like I said, I'm still digging in because I think there's a lot of ways to move forward. The report is very clear that these are not mandates. They are suggestions. The only way that this helps provide a framework for changing that culture at the Capitol is if there's resources, both financial and people, that go behind it as well. David, your father was in the legislature. What do you think? Has the culture changed, or is this an ongoing issue? Boy, it sure was... They didn't have as much fun back then as apparently they, they do now. Um, never, never heard of anything like that. I mean, there were people who, who carried on extramarital affairs, but those were all very, you know, consensual things. Um, on on Baumgartner, I would never hire the Mountain States Employers Council for any investigative purpose. This is a situation where Complete Colorado, which is a new service affiliated with Independence Institute, obtained a copy of the investigation. And it says the complainant didn't even see who touched her. It was in a crowded hallway. It was from behind. But the complainant is, just thinks it was Baumgartner. And then you have an interview, and the interviewer from Mountain States likes the complainant more than Baumgartner, who can be kind of arrogant and, and unfriendly sometimes. And on the basis of that, makes a conclusion more likely than not. Likewise, on, on uh, Senator Jack Tate, uh, it's against his credibility, supposedly, that he brought a lawyer to the interview, according to the Mountain States Employers Council. So I, I think these were very bogus cases on extremely thin evidence. Whatever you think about those two senators otherwise, the evidence against them was, was close to non-existent. And it, it's a disgrace to the Senate Democrats that they kept pushing this thing for so long. And on top of the one of the lead complaint uh, people raising big furor was Senator Daniel Kagan, who it now turns out they actually had to change the lock on the women's restroom on the second floor of the Capitol because he kept using it. And he's the one getting all indignant uh, about Senator Baumgartner for something that nobody even saw. Eric, you've always used the correct bathroom. What do you think about what we're seeing at the legislature? 
Well, Natasha framed it as a wild ride. It has been a wild ride. It continues to be a wild ride. To the point about uh, Mountain State's Employer Council and some of the, those reports, I share some of those concerns in terms of the more likely than not standard and some of the basis of what they considered in making that judgment of more likely than not. That said, I don't think you can find two people at the Capitol out of hundreds or thousands that hang around there who don't think that Senator Baumgartner in particular, I'm not opining on some of the others, has engaged in this kind of conduct and, and done so with some frequency. Uh, to be clear, the report that we're talking about that came out within the last day or two about the culture at the Capitol and policies at the Capitol was not done by Mountain State's Employers Council. It was done by a, a different operation. Uh, the woman who runs that operation, Liz Rita, is somebody I've known from years gone by. I don't think you can apply the same critiques to that report, the 235-page report that, that you mentioned, Patty. Um, and that struck me as a much more solid and grounded kind of document and the operative word in all this is culture and there is a culture that is built up over years at the Capitol for a lot of the reasons on uh, Natasha hit of just the, the, the power disparity there and the added factor that for a whole lot of these folks you're away from home uh, and and things happen uh, when you're away from home and home is a uh, hundred miles or several hundred miles away and you're here for a number of months. Uh, so I, I think the report was a step forward. Obviously it's all going to be in the implementation of the report. A report is just a report and can easily go on some shelf if it is not taken seriously and not just in the remaining four or five weeks of this session but going forward and uh, after this session you would hope that we don't have a repeat of this uh, with any regularity. Joey, you're our man at the Capitol. How do you see this report playing out? Well, it's interesting. You know, we had hoped that we would have some resolution, a new policy going forward by the end of the session on May 9th, but now they're talking about working on this over the summer, which makes a lot of sense, but it also feeds a political cynicism. There are people at the Capitol who see this as just a way to keep the Me Too fires burning until November. So I don't know about that, but you know, the, the document, I, you know, I've read through it. Um, there's some interesting stuff in there. You know, Natasha's right, about 28%, 30% say they've seen something, 13% say they've reported it, but 70% of female legislators say they've seen or experienced something. You know, that's a very high number. So that also makes me wonder if there's some, some gender politics going on. Are female legislators with all the same powers as the male legislators, are they somehow under attack? Um, I don't know. I don't know what the politics of this are. I know that it's having a very deep effect on this legislative session and now it's going to be next legislative session. If it's not next legislative session, if these meetings this summer are just about keeping the, as I say, the Me Too fires burning and we don't have a new policy, we don't have new procedures, then it's about the politics of the moment. It's not about solving a real problem. I did a column a couple of weeks ago about it's a shame that we've had this very, we're having this very important, long overdue discussion under the cloud of politics because that's an injustice to the accused and the accuser because you have people, no matter what the outcome is, second guessing them. And that calls for a better policy. Well, we, we're not done talking about this topic, but in the meantime, 
Chatter of Governor Hickenlooper running for president in 2020 resurfaced this week as he traveled to Iowa to speak at a STEM education panel alongside other governors. He was also interviewed on the Politico Money podcast discussing his recent Iowa visit, the current divide in our country, and the likelihood of a Hickenlooper-Kasich ticket. David, are you going to be out campaigning for that one? <laughs> we will we'll have to see. You know, and, and it's, it's not unreasonable for Hickenlooper at this stage to imagine and, and start taking the preliminary steps. It reminds me of 1972 when you had 17 Democrats running for the party's nomination for the right to take on incumbent Republican President uh, Richard Nixon. And one of them was Birch Bayh, a perfectly solid, good Democratic senator from Indiana. And a reporter said, you know, how do you, why do you think you can be president? And he explained, well, I, I get what you mean when I think about Roosevelt and Lincoln and Washington. You know, how am I in that category? No, not at all. I, I shouldn't even let myself consider it for a second. On the other hand, I looked at all the other people running and said, why not? <laughs> and he was just as qualified as anybody else who was, who was running that year. So why not for Hickenlooper? I mean, would he be as good a president as, as Kamala Harris or Cory Booker or something like that? I think he can easily pass that test when he looks in the mirror. His strength and his vulnerability is on economic issues, oil and gas, things like that. He is more moderate than where the hardcore left of the party has, has moved it. He was Ten years ago, it would have been very mainstream on these issues. Now the party has gone in a much more socialist direction. In fact, the Denver, Denver Democratic Party actually adopted socialism as part of its platform uh, at the recent convention. So that will make it tough for him on the primaries. On the other hand, to the extent that the, I think the majority of actual registered Democrats are not as far left as the activists, he may be the guy around whom the, the moderates uh, can rally. He might be able to to go pretty deep into the primaries if he uh, gets a good start. Eric, what do you think? Uh, Hickenlooper as a Democrat or running on an independent platform with Kasich? Or neither? Um, probably as a Democrat. I think Hickenlooper and Kasich have developed this sort of mutual admiration society. I think they're sort of using each other to, uh, for their respective hype. But I do think both of them are right that at the end of the day, you would love to see that kind of a unity ticket, but there are a couple questions. First of all, who's on the top line of the ticket? Um, and I would guess that would be Kasich, just given his longer tenure of experience and how deep he went uh, in the primary two years ago. Uh, and But second problem is just, you know, what set of policies are you standing for around a whole host of issues where the two parties, there is no middle. There is just a very stark ground between the two, uh, two parties. David, you know, is referenced to 1972. I think if you look at the Democratic field that is starting to form for 2020, 17 is going to be a very small number. I mean, you're into the 20s and approaching 30. Now, they're not all going to make it to the starting line. Uh, and we'll see if Hickenlooper is one that makes it to the starting line or not. But in terms of the number of people who seriously look at themselves at the, in the mirror at 2 o'clock in the morning and see a president or at least a presidential candidate, you have 25 or 30 named Democrats who, uh, who are in that category right now. David's point is the, the relevant point, which is it's hard to see. There, uh, things happen, lightning strikes. But it is hard to see the John Hickenlooper path through Iowa, through New Hampshire, 
in a party that has moved hard to the left in the aftermath of the Hillary debacle. Uh, the, this party is much closer to Bernie Sanders and that platform these days than it is to Hillary Clinton or even to Barack Obama, who is pl plenty left in his own right. And it is hard to see how a John Hickenlooper navigates that particular process, but maybe he becomes the counterpoint to it. I'm not going to Vegas, speaking of Dominic. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to bet a Hickenlooper presidency at this point in time in Vegas, but uh, he's certainly playing with it. Well, if Dominic's watching, we'll see if he bids. You are under the dome, Joey. What do you hear about the governor? Well, I've had this conversation one-on-one -on -one with the governor and in press scrums with the governor about this. Are you running? Are you not running? He says he's not running. And there are things, you know, if you cherry-pick the, the, the occurrences, there is a reason to believe that he might be thinking about running for governor. But there's, there's way more things that he's not doing that he would be doing if he were really running for governor. For one thing, he says he and his wife don't talk about it much anymore, and his son Teddy has no, apparently has no interest in moving to D.C. Uh, I think Hickenlooper likes for people to talk about him running for president, but I don't think he really is. If this is a trial balloon, it's full of hot air, which is how you get lift. And there's a lot of hot air around this. I didn't think that was going to be funny, but thank you. Um, but, you know, I, I just don't see it. I, uh, I, think, I think Hickenlooper is more likely to run against Cory Gardner in 2020 for U.S. Senate. And Dave and, uh, and is right. You know, Hickenlooper doesn't fit the Democratic template anymore. I don't think he can run as a Democrat because the party has left him. But as far as Cory Gardner race goes, I think Democrats, if they'll listen to a name that most of our viewers haven't heard, Trish Zornio. She's a scientist from Boulder County. She's looking at running against Cory Gardner, and she's the ideal candidate for the Democratic Party. Unfortunately, she doesn't have a lot of money, and she doesn't have longevity, which is something the Colorado Democratic Party seems to... Uh, well, the National Democratic Party seems to anoint candidates, and at this point, Trish isn't anointed, but, uh, you know, what kind of candidate she becomes might determine on what kind of candidate John Hickenlooper becomes. And Natasha, what do you think? Where do you see Governor Hickenlooper going? Well, I think right now what he's doing is actually presenting, uh, and, and other people who potentially would run as well, are presenting topics that are going to be hot. And so one of the things he's been talking a lot about is the rural-urban divide, which is a huge topic in Colorado, and he's bringing it to a more national audience. I think there's some oversimplification of that message, um, sort of an idea that the rural areas can, can have more similarities than I think they perhaps do. I mean, this country is a very diverse and different place. And the same for urban centers as well. So I think Hickenlooper has an opportunity to take the conversations that he's had here again and again and again and bring them to a national level. And it'll be interesting to see how Colorado continues to be part of that conversation. Well, a new ballot tax proposal was announced this week in partnership with Democratic State Representative Leslie Harrod and the Mental Health Center of Denver. If the Caring for Denver measure makes it to the November ballot, voters will be asked whether to approve a $0.25 cent per $100 city sales tax increase to fund suicide prevention and other mental health-related services in Denver. Eric, you're a political consultant. Where do you see this going? Interesting. Uh, there's no questioning the cause, no questioning the need. The questions will be about, is this the right revenue stream? Is it the right amount? And is this how you want to make tax policy with just every everyone who has a claim on the public purse 
just putting it on the ballot and, and doing a feel-good campaign for it. Leslie Harrod is a formidable person, an up-and-coming uh, Democratic Party player. Uh, that she has adopted this issue and embraced it is certainly a big step forward uh, for this campaign. It is not an insignificant tax. You frame it as 25 cents on a $100 bill, sounds small, but this is more than the tax on the construction of Coors Field, on the construction of the football stadium, on the preschool program, even after they increased it at reauthorization. So, you know, this is a chunk of change, it would raise about $45 million as estimated uh, per year. But my view of Denver, and I've said this on the show before, is that. Uh, in Denver, there's a, a widespread sentiment that the more you tax yourself, the closer to God. And uh, I think this is in keeping with that kind of uh, a sentiment, and I would not be at all surprised to see it pass. Joey, it's a Denver proposal, but it was announced at the Capitol. You were there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Leslie Harrod, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, Herod, I'm sorry, I, I, that's my New Orleans pronunciation. <laughs> but she is a very uh, capable leader, and I say she could be our first woman governor and our first African-American governor if she continues on the path that she's going. You know, this will be a test. You know, I see this tax kind of like an oil filter. You know, it's pay me now or pay me later. You know, there's no, just because you don't treat mental health in the community doesn't mean you don't pay for mental health in the community. You pay for it with homelessness. You pay it for it by putting people in jails instead of getting them into, into programs that they need. You know, 25 cents. Denver loves to tax themselves, and this is a worthy tax that, they, that I think a lot of people will support. You know, the, uh, the people proposing this have done internal polling that show 80% 80, 80 support for it. We'll see if those people show up to vote in November. Natasha, do you see this making it on the ballot and then making it onto law? Yeah, I see it in making its way onto the ballot, but I think it will be the start of many things that we're going to see on the ballot this election. So it'll be interesting once uh, that the atmosphere sort of for people's time gets more competitive, how they'll be able to get their message across. I mean, obviously the need is there. I think that um, that awareness has, has grown in coming years, but how we address the problem, that remains to be seen. David, do you think this is a start to addressing that problem? Uh, hopefully, yes. And I think Joey's exactly right that you save money in the long run by spending more up front on, on helping people with mental health problems than putting them in jail and, and all the other consequences. Uh, so I, I think this proposal deserves a serious look to see exactly what the money is going to be spent on and also to see what, what Denver's already doing. You know, I, I think Denver has had terrible budget priorities over the years and has much, been much more interested in shoveling corporate welfare at developers than it has been on taking care of essential city services like paving the streets and also this safety net. But I, I say good for Representative Herod for putting this out there and her, her idea is worthy of a careful look. Well, th that's good. We'll be talking about this more as we come up to November, but now it's time for everyone's favorite moment, Disgrace of the Week, Natasha. Well, this, this week marked the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. Um, and while I've really appreciated and enjoyed the opportunity to look back on his life and his legacy and, and the huge number of people who helped him do his work, um, also disappointed by how much, how much work still needs to be done. David? In these increasingly Stalinist times where leftist totalitarians try to crush out all opposition or diverse speech, uh, Channel 12 continues to do a great job of bringing not only diverse people but diverse ideas uh, to the whole metro area. So good for them for their strong uh, performance in First Amendment rights. We're on disgrace, but 
Oh, sorry. Well, that's all right. We'll take it. We'll, okay. we'll come back to you, Eric. The disgrace is that David mixed up the, uh, he was the disgrace in the night. I did that a but... month ago, too, so that's a recurring problem. Um, I want to make clear this is not about the Denver Post. This is about the Alden Capital Group, which is the hedge fund that owns the Post. But when you decimate a newsroom, as that newsroom has been decimated, and then most recently with another 30 people um, in, in the process of, of, of saying goodbye or being uh, laid off, you have incidents like this morning where we woke up to a, a spread about Coors Field uh, in the Denver Post, and they didn't even have a picture of Coors Field. They had a picture of Citizens uh, Park, Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia. When you lay off editors, when everyone is incredibly overworked, mistakes happen. This one is at the doorstep of the hedge fund that owns this operation. Dominic noticed that in Las Vegas, too. Our metaphor maestro, Joey, what do you have as a disgrace? Uh, China. China. They, they, you know, or maybe it starts with the Trump administration. You know, they impose these tariffs. China counters with tariffs against agriculture products, completely different than what the Trump administration had done. But unfortunately, in the crosshairs are farmers and ranchers who already were in the crosshairs. It's, it's tough politics because these are the people who put Donald Trump in office. So... Shame on China for playing politics like Russians. And now something nice, Natasha. Well, they say something nice and a public service announcement. The street sweepers are back, so be careful where you park. But every year around this time, I appreciate how much they do to make the city look just a little bit better. Um, and it just makes me think of all the other things that happen in the city that we don't see every day that do help the city run. So cheers to the street sweepers. David, do you have something disgraceful I'll, about CPT? I'll, no, I'll say something nice. <laughs> the Israeli Defense Forces, who continue to defend the Mideast's only democracy against the attempts of Hamas terrorists uh, to breach its borders and exterminate the Jewish people. Eric Sunderman? Hey, it's opening day for the Rockies, or at least the home opener. First pitch is about an hour from now. The weather is not all that uh, cooperative or inviting out there, but the Rockies have made themselves into probably the most interesting and potentially successful franchise of the professional sports franchises at the moment in Denver, and uh, it's going to be an interesting year. And pigs are going to fly. Okay, Joey. <laughs> well, I'm going to stay on tariffs. Senator Michael Bennett, he was uh, in western Colorado last week talking to farmers and ranchers about these tar tariffs, trying to, you know, to deliver some peace of mind to them. So good for him and good for the Democratic Party if they follow Bennett's lead and reach out to these rural voters at a time Republicans may be losing them. And I have a prop here from our sometime panelist, Lynn Bartles, over at the Secretary of State's office. For all the unaffiliated voters and all registered voters, we topped $2 million this year. And for her boss, Wayne Williams, no longer under investigation by the Denver DA's grand jury. That's all the time we have for this edition of Colorado Inside Out. Take CIO wherever you go. Check out our podcast on iTunes or Google Play. For everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Patricia Calhoun. Good night. Thank you.